I offer this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have a lot happening today, haven't we? We're celebrating uh, our graduates. We're marking significant transitions among our choristers. We'll be decommissioning the Kluka organ later, uh, so it can be removed tomorrow and make room for a Cassavant organ later in the year. And then, of course, there's the university graduation, and let's not forget Mother's Day. There's a lot of energy, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening today. And surely that was the kind of atmosphere that Paul encountered in that old ancient university town of Athens. He preached from a rocky perch just north of the Acropolis, and he preached about the many objects of worship that he was seeing. Here, what would he see? Not so much many altars, but certainly many temples, I think, temples to academic pursuits, uh, temples uh, everywhere. He might notice the names on the buildings of people he would assume to be illustrious. He'd probably comment on the fact that some of the largest temples, not unlike in Athens, were in fact sports arenas. He would have probably noticed that, even if they weren't built for horse racing and chariot competitions. Perhaps he'd stand on the steps of South Building, or maybe he'd be in the pit where some of you might remember in the 70s there was a crazed evangelist ranting about how we were all going to hell, and just we felt like we were in hell as we listened to him. But that's... <laughs> but, so he'd notice all this, and what would he say? What would Paul be saying today? He might be concerned perhaps about how difficult commitment can be in the face of a multiplicity of choices. You might notice how restaurants represent food from around the world, how the grocery store, you probably find 20 different kinds of things calling itself butter. Maybe he would notice the choice of theologies from the various church brands, and he'd wonder whether, whether it's possible to make a commitment with so many choices. But then he would talk to a sports fan, and he'd realize commitment is not the issue. <laughs> that people are quite capable of organizing their lives around something that is really important to them. So he might then think, well, perhaps religious commitment is the issue. The altar to the unknown God might be the spiritual but not religious types hedging their bets. He would like Jesus, like the Jesus of John's gospel, say that the spiritual request requires embodiment, requires embodiment in some kind of community. In recent weeks, we've heard John's Jesus proclaim himself as the gate of the sheep. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life, adding that no one comes to the Father but through him. In the same vein, in the same tone, we hear him say today, those who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them, and I will reveal myself to them. Now, Paul was aware of the sensibilities of the Athenians, and he would be aware that our modern sensibilities find such claims to exclusivity to be repugnant. He might take time to teach us about the conflicts among the early followers of Jesus and how John's gospel reflects the, uh, the expulsion of the followers of the way from the synagogues, families breaking up over it. 
and how, how John is giving, bolstering them, saying Jesus is the lens, Jesus is the way, Jesus is what you need to be focused on. But would he not say to us, as he said to the Athenians, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the one who is Lord of earth and heaven, gives to all mortals life and breath, made nations to inhabit the earth so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. He might add an injunction not to worry about setting up systems, not to worry uh, about, about what happens to Mongolians and Muslims, to jihadis and Jews. It's not about heaven as much as it is a call to abundant life right now. He's making an existential claim on us and our affections. And you start getting caught up in this or that theological debate and using it as a way not to commit, then he would say, that's avoiding the real question. There comes a point where ignorance is willful. Look at that place of unknowing, and what do you sense there, he might ask us? What might it mean for you? How might an encounter with God change your life for the better? Mean that you don't have to fear. Maybe it can mean that you can trust whatever circumstances come along. Maybe it can mean that you're less reactive and more responsive to whatever life offers. And so let's say we do hear Paul. And most of us remember some kind of encounter with the holy. What, what then do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we find a community of spiritual practice. That's what we are. That's what we're doing here. Worship is uh, worthship. It's turning or being turned. The Greek scholars will recognize the word metanoia, often called repentance. It's turning toward what really matters and allowing it to shape our lives. That's what we do each week, tell and in some sense enact the story around the table. We find a community of spiritual practice. We could talk about generosity as spiritual practice. We could talk about service and probably over the course of the summer, uh, we will. But we'll, we'll, we become like the person Jesus imagines in Matthew when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. We orient our lives around what really matters to us. Commitment is not the issue. Are we committed to this community of practice, because it's through regular practice that I at least find uh, I live ever more fully into the promises of the gospel. When we engage spiritual practice over time, we can expect to start finding ourselves living more abundantly, living more joyfully, living more courageously, generously, lovingly than we imagine possible. I often think growing in faith is something we do in hindsight <laughs> and say, yeah, things that used to take me uh, three hours or three weeks to get over, I now get over in three minutes, you know, three seconds. That's maybe what it is to grow in faith. And we're growing towards what? Well, we're growing towards fullness of life even in the face of death. 
even in times of struggle. And in that regard, I've got a story. And I've told it, I've shared the story before, but not with you. And it, it's, it's kind of where I live and where I want to live. And it's the story of a woman who joined a parish I was serving, gosh, probably 20 years ago now. And she'd had a really bad diagnosis of cancer. And she knew some people in the parish. And she decided to come join us because she wanted to be in a community which was a rarity in her life, one that would talk about life and death and meaning and purpose and what matters as she went through whatever she was going to have to face. Over the next seven or eight years, we talked often. She, was, you know, she had times when she was really quite well and times when she was in really grueling treatment. You all know what that's like. You've all seen it. And then one day, her horizon was clearly near, and I visited her in her home. And she um, and her husband were lying on top of their bed. And I said something really kind of stupid and obvious, like, well, I don't suppose there's much fun in your life at the moment, is there? And she looked at her husband and took his hand, and they clearly talked about this. And she said, Jeffrey, this is not fun, but we both have deep joy. This is not fun, but we both have deep joy. And I thought, goodness, that's it. That's sort of being right with God and the world, right with each other. That's meaning. That's purpose, even in the face of death. We don't have much fun, but we have deep joy. My prayer for all of us is that we live that fully, even unto death, that we grow in abundant life, that we hear what Paul has to say. Athenians, you too can choose joy, the way of abundant life, even among all the choices of this world. Deep joy, even in the face of death. Amen. Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at thechapelofthecross, and on Facebook and Twitter C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.